Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here are your co-hosts, Shenandoah Connor and Barron's Hall of Fame top advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome everyone to another episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. We are here again for another exciting interview. Really looking forward to hear from this guest because I actually haven't been able to talk to them before. So I'm going to punt it over to my co-host, John, uh, to get us started. Thanks, Shenandoah. Hey, everyone. Another exciting podcast. And I've got to say, uh, Shenandoah keeps getting amazing guests. So uh, today's guest has actually uh, become a friend to my financial planning practice and is one of, uh, in my opinion, uh, the preeminent experts in the industry, uh, especially as it relates to advisors in transition uh, and advisors looking to vet uh, opportunities within the financial services marketplace. Uh, so for most of our listeners, we're probably very familiar with Diamond Consultants who's built an outstanding reputation uh, in the industry. And I'm really excited to share that our guest is Mr. Lewis Diamond, who is president of Diamond Consultants. So Lewis, I wanted to thank you for being our guest today and welcome you. And uh, maybe you can just say a quick hello to the crowd. Perfect. Thank you so much, John and Shenandoah. Um, really excited to be your guest today. Um, hello, crowd. Um, nice to meet you over the podcast. Um, and hopefully this will be a helpful episode just to help you dissect some of the differences between the many different channels of the industry. And uh, if there's anything I can do to help, uh, always glad to assist. Yeah, love it, uh, Lewis, and thank you for that. And, you know, uh, Lewis and I were chatting just before we uh, hit the record button here. And uh, I was a guest probably, I think it was in December, uh, on, uh, on Lewis and Mindy's podcast. And Lewis was really nice to me uh, and asked really easy questions. So I promised him I would do the same for him today. So, you know, Lewis, just to get us started here, um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about you, your background, um, and a little bit for those who might not know about really what it is uh, Diamond Consultants does and uh, kind of who you serve and how you serve uh, your clientele. Absolutely. Appreciate the question. So um, I am the president of Diamond Consultants. Um, we are a family owned and operated business. And I have the distinct pleasure of working and partnering alongside both my mom, Mindy Diamond, who founded our company 22 years ago, and my dad as well, who is a recovering attorney and is our chief operating officer. Um, so I like to joke that um, I've been doing this for about 23 years at this point, um, but really only six or seven in, in this particular chair. Um, so prior to joining Diamond Consultants, I worked with Morgan Stanley and UBS, um, working on um, teams of advisors, more in like an administrative support role, um, and then spent uh, about two and a half years as a management consultant for financial services firms with EY um, before coming over to Diamond Consultants. Um, and our company, kind of a little bit of what we do is in this industry where there's so many options for advisors and teams and business owners, um, we try to just bring order to it. Um, while there's a lot of really smart people who are recruiters or business development folks for various firms, um, we, we represent the advisor. Um, so as an objective consultant, uh, we help advisors first define their why and kind of their their North Star, um, help them clarify what they're looking for, what's frustrating them, what's motivating them. And then we have relationships with really every viable, every viable firm in the industry, whether it's the wirehouses, the regional broker dealers, firms like Ray J and Ameriprise and Stiefel, um, and then tons and tons of options on the independent side. Um, so today, um, a little bit more than half of our business is from the independent wealth management segment where we're either helping captive wirehouse advisors launch their own independent business, either on a independent broker dealer platform um, or launching their own RIA. And then the other um, say 40 to 50% is working with advisors to remain in kind of the captive channels. So working with a wirehouse team and helping them evaluate whether going to Morgan Stanley 
or going to Stiefel is going to move the needle enough for them relative to staying put. Um, and the last thing I'll say is we also do some mergers and acquisitions work, um, somewhat similar to how investment bankers work. We're working with either subscale independent practices or those who are looking for a succession plan or to monetize a portion of their business and we'll help them find the right fit, um, whether that means selling a minority portion of the business or merging or an all out sale. No, love it. Yeah. And uh, that's a great refresher for me as well, Lewis. And, um, you know, as I had said, I, when, I, when I think of uh, firms that help advisors out there, you know, Diamond Consultants is at the tippy top of the list from a credibility perspective and, and the work that you guys have all done in the industry. So, you know, congrats again on that. You know, to drill down a little bit, um, you know, one of the questions that I, I'd love to get into your head a little bit on, and hopefully our, our listeners would as well, is you obviously speak to a lot of advisors, right, uh, on a daily basis who are thinking about change, right, that are kind of kicking tires or, uh, you know, thinking about if there's a better place for them to potentially sit. I would be really interested to get in your head a little bit you know, what do you find the catalyst really is? Like, why, why are advisors generally speaking to you um, and thinking about a change? I don't know if you could talk to that a bit for us, Lewis. Sure. Yeah, I'd say the first thing is, um, in order to talk with us and really our whole approach is not about, okay, this person or this team is going to change broker dealers or make a move. Um, for us, it all starts with education. Um, we think that if you're an educated advisor, not that you have a CFP or a CFA, but more so that you understand the, the changing dynamics of the industry, you understand what the landscape looks like. And really for many, it's evaluating a plan B. It's if my firm does X, Y, or Z, or things change so much, at least I know I can jump to action and not be caught flat-footed. So that's just the first kind of disclaimer. Um, usually when advisors engage with us and we're helping them through a due diligence process, um, there has to be a, there has to be sufficient enough pushes. So what I mean by that are pain points. So whether that's um, restrictive compliance and being managed to lowest common denominator or a changing compensation plan where it prioritizes um, bringing in a certain number of households or selling debit cards or securities backed loans. Um, sometimes it's technology that they feel like is not up to par. Um, sometimes with independent firms, it's a sale of a broker dealer um, that's a catalyst. Um, so we always say there has to be enough pushes um, or enough, enough of a catalyst or a motivator for someone to even want to embark on a due diligence process. Moving is a huge hassle. It's a ton of work. It's risky and it's a disruptor. So even if an advisor found the best possible option, I would probably say they, shil they still shouldn't move and put their clients through the change unless they're unhappy enough. Um, so depending upon the channel of the industry, some of the frustrations might be different, but the, the short answer to your question is freedom, flexibility, and control. That's what all advisors are looking for, no matter what channel of the industry they're in. They all want more of it. And as they want more, their firms typically try to take it away or standardize things. And you can say that if you're a wirehouse team um, practicing at a Morgan Merrill UBS, or even if you're at a certain broker dealer and you want control over technology, you want control over what platforms you work with, et cetera. Awesome. Yeah. Freedom, flexibility, and control. Um, that, that pretty much sums it up. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting, um, you know, as you know, we, we, in my own practice, talk to advisors a lot. Um, and I think the first piece that, yeah, meaning that are, are considering moving to our firm, and I think the first piece you hit um, is a really, really smart one, um, which is advisors. I'm always shocked at how little advisors really understand about the industry and kind of the difference between a regional, a wirehouse, an independent broker dealer, an RIA, a hybrid RIA, so on and et cetera. Um, you know, in your words, I think it would be helpful for our listeners, Lewis, maybe you can just talk a little bit through, you know, kind of in those themes, when you think about a regional, a wirehouse, an RIA, an independent broker dealer, you know, kind of like, what do you see advisors see as the pros and cons 
of each of those different ways to affiliate as an advisor. Absolutely. And you're right. It is, um, there are a lot of different options and a lot of really viable options for advisors. And what makes it a little bit more challenging is the lines really are getting blurred. Um, you're seeing firms, whether it's Ameriprise that has what we would consider to be a regional firm, join it as an employee or join the uh, broker dealer as an independent, which we would consider to be an independent broker dealer. You have companies like LPL that can be a RA custodian, you can be an employee, you can be an RIA, you can um, be on their corporate platform. Um, the, the lines are really blurred. Um, so the way we would describe it is um, we like to think of the industry as a horizontal line and all the way to the left is going to be the most restrictive um, platforms in the industry. So that's either you're a bank broker um, sitting in a bank branch, maybe you're a private banker. Um, and we don't really deal too much with those, with those folks, um, but it's just good, good illustrative point. And then all the way to the very, very right is I have as much control in the world, but I'm completely on my own and I'm cobbling together everything as my own RIA. And then everything else is somewhere in between. So if you look at a, a wirehouse, that would be the UBSs, Morgans, Merrills, Wells Fargo's of the world. Um, they're, they have the massive brands. Um, typically the most productive advisors in the industry sit within those firms, um, incredible platforms, uh, world-class reputations, and really everything an advisor needs under one roof. The challenge is um, advisors um, are, feeling, are feeling the crunch there. Um, they are low, managed to lowest common denominator. Those firms are quite bureaucratic. Some of them have product pressures and proprietary products. So we are, we are actually seeing an uptick in advisors moving within the wirehouse channel to another wirehouse, but it's not a foregone conclusion anymore. Um, even when I started, started six years ago, it was a pretty good bet that a quality advisor, say someone doing over a million of GDC or production, um, if they were already at a wirehouse, they're probably gonna stay within that channel. Um, and that really changed, I think, with the next bucket, the regional firms becoming validated by really quality teams. And the regional firms, um, we would consider Ameriprise to be one on the employee side, Raymond James and Associates, Stiefel, RBC. They're all, they're all W2 employee options where you sit in a branch similar to Wirehouse. But advisors love those firms because they prioritize their culture and it's, they, they focus on on, on it being easier for advisors um, to get things done and to do things for their clients. And they have competitive recruiting deals and still really good brands. But those firms weren't necessarily top of mind for, for top teams um, prior to, I would say, some of the changes at the wirehouses. Um, and then to, to go quickly through the rest, um, you have we consider boutique firms, so like a Rockefeller, First Republic, JP Morgan, similar story to the others, but they're just much smaller and they prioritize larger, higher net worth teams, but some advisors like those. And then everything else is some version of independent. So you have the independent broker dealers. So platforms where advisors are independent contractors, own their business, create their own brand many times, and you're captive to, to a platform or broker dealer. So you can do your advisory and your brokerage business through the broker dealer. Um, you get a, a very high payout and you get the scaffolding of compliance and technology and operations and some decent upfront money. And the last stop is the RA world. Um, we're probably seeing the most growth in the RA segment where assets are custodied with Schwab, Fidelity, used to be TD Ameritrade, Pershing Advisor Solutions. And then again, the line's getting blurred. LPL and Raymond James can be a custodian, which kind of gets a little bit confusing, but advisors are, are moving toward that segment because they want more control than even you have an independent broker dealer where they get to pick all the different pieces of technology. They get to work with multiple custodians. They're not captive to just the managers and the alternatives and the lending solutions that are available um, on, on a captive platform. The downside is um, with so much choice, sometimes comes to overwhelm and advisors have to figure out what's the highest and best use of their time. So many teams will outsource um, some of the day-to-day -to, -day to a platform provider, or even tuck in or join um, a practice um, to get some of that extra support. Um, so there's some other kind of combinations and permutations along the way, but that's probably the way I would describe the different buckets or different channels of the industry. 
No, I think that really sums it up. I that really cleared it up for me because I'm I'm always in the same boat of trying to figure out the differences, but it definitely seems like it's a continuum. And along that continuum, the big trade-off is between independence, but then also that support and infrastructure. Exactly. Um, so as an advisor is looking at these things, and like you said, they finally start feeling where there's enough reasons for them to want to consider a change. When you're working with them, how are you helping them kind of start to assess where it might be a good fit for them to go? Is there a process that you use? Are there questions that they need to ask? How do you go about that? Yeah, so we think it is all about the process. Um, plenty of advisors make a move very successfully and they don't work with a consultant or a recruiter like Diamond Consultants or some of our competitors. Um, the challenge is many of those folks report that it, it's overwhelming and they sometimes just take a shotgun approach They'll pick up the phone when so-and-so calls or my friend went to XYZ firm or I saw this firm on an advisor hub and they just get overwhelmed because they're, they don't have order or reason to what they're looking for. So what we do is first it starts with education. It's a much longer and deeper series of conversations to the last question, just kind of going through the different types of firms in the industry. How do you do this? How do you do that? And just getting advisors comfortable with what's out there. Um, the second step is we have a proprietary self-assessment. It's about 20 questions or so that, we, um, that we've, we've honed as the most important questions advisors can ask themselves. And if it's a team of advisors that each team member can complete and to see how much alignment there is between the goals and objectives. Um, once we kind of understand what someone's looking for and the questions range from what's your why? Why are you an advisor? What, what's the highest and best use of your time? What's frustrating you? What, what's motivating you to move? If you had a magic wand, what would be the five attributes you'd pick in a firm? Um, what are the best resources you have today that you'd want to replicate? And it goes on and on. Um, once we have that sort of information, um, then we can begin to get targeted on making recommendations. Um, so because we work with so many firms, our objective is never to have an advisor speak to 10 firms or 12 firms, it's likely, okay, let's pick one, two, three, maybe five of the best in different categories, and let's go on a listening tour. Um, and it's, an, it's a very iterative process. So making an introduction is easy. Um, from there, it's project managing, it's debriefing, it's being objective, and ultimately helping someone negotiate and just giving them some additional questions to ask themselves and ask of a firm so that they can have confidence that without looking at every firm in the industry, that's, that's my job to do, um, that um, they can have confidence in moving forward because they've been thorough and they've been thoughtful about their approach. Yeah, well said, Lewis. And um, I, I, I love that you guys have this self-assessment and I'm glad you gave a couple of the questions because that, that's what I was thinking is, what are those questions that you would ask? So thanks for, uh, for giving a little bit about that. You know, when you went through um, this kind of horizontal line. I, I actually wrote notes on, on everything you said there. Uh, one of the things that you said, which I thought was kind of interesting, was that um, you know, generally wirehouse advisors are, most, are the most productive advisors. And I can see that too in statistics, right? Their, you know, their annual revenue, their assets under management are the highest in the industry as well, right? So you know, I always look at it, and I love just your kind of thought and how you look at it, you know, as an advisor thinking about, you know, if you're in the right spot or, you know, as you said, if there's enough kind of pushes to pull you somewhere else, you're kind of thinking about, I, I think at least, right, you're thinking about, um, you know, productivity, right, will I be able to grow my business quicker, which I feel like a lot of advisors don't focus on that one so much, you're thinking about products and technology and platform. You're thinking about payout rate, enterprise value, right? Which I think a lot of advisors don't fully understand. Um, and then, you know, probably culture. So, and probably uh, giving you more information, uh, you know, all the things that you already know, but could you talk through that a little bit? Like I'm always challenged to say, Sometimes you have that rate and volume conversation, meaning if you if the average advisor in a wire is doing a million, yes, the payout rate rate you know far right and an RIA might be higher, but like what do people really make when they make that change, right? What is that net payout rate? 
what is that compound annual growth rate of the practice? Maybe you can talk through that because I know you've helped so many advisors move um, and you know, kind of the results that they've been able to have. Absolutely. So headline payout in any channel of the industry is super misleading. When you hear an advisor say, I have a 95% payout, that's not really true. Um, same thing in the wirehouse world. Advisors, you say, I have a 48% payout. That's not really true either because what's really coming to them in their W-2 is going to be considerably less because the wirehouses will defer anywhere from 8 to 15% of total compensation into deferred, into deferred comp or kind of the golden handcuffs. Um, and then advisors will pay bonuses to support staff Many will pick up the salary of, um, of a whole additional person or multiple team members that come out of pocket for client entertainment. So it depends upon the practice and the size, but usually a true net payout to a wirehouse advisor is probably in the high, is probably the mid to high 30s. Um, and you compare that to going independent. Um, and it really does depend upon where you're practicing and how much support you're going to get. Because if you're talking to a biz dev person at a RA custodian, they'll say you get a 100% payout. Again, misleading, because really what matters is what's your net after expenses and how do you make it apples to apples? Um, so it, it, logic says if you're an RIA, you're doing everything on your own. You're the compliance officer. You're running investments. It's your office space. You took all the risk. Um, you're going to make the most money. Um, a well-run RIA could easily net 75, 80, 85% of revenue after expenses. Um, and then usually our wirehouse clients, if they do go independent, they'll opt for some extra scaffolding and support. So whether it's joining a firm um, like yours, John, um, as an affiliate or as, a, as an independent contractor or um, leveraging a, um, an RIA platform, um, those advisors can normally make in the say 60 to 70% of revenue range. So sometimes it can be almost a double of income from one platform being an employee of a wirehouse to being independent. But the biggest thing is, I mean, the math of independence makes a ton of sense, as you know, and you're building enterprise value, you're owning your own equity, and you have more control. And of course, making double for a period of time, especially as you grow, can really make a big difference. But there's also really lucrative upfront bonuses from wirehouses and from regional firms. So you need an advisor to think more medium to long-term greedy because someone going out and being independent is taking more of a risk. They're betting more on themselves to have a really successful transition and they're really bullish on their growth rate. So what we like to say is you'll don't go independent because of the economics. You'll get comfortable with the economics if the rest works, but go independent because you want more control. You wanna create your own brand. You wanna own your own equity. And the last part of your question was on growth rates. Um, I don't know the, the numbers, but usually advisors who are independent can grow faster organically and also inorganically. They grow faster organically because they have less restrictions. Um, they're able to be more efficient because they don't have so much administrative and compliance to deal with. They might grow faster because they can bill on assets held away and they can, they can layer on additional services, whether it's tax prep, or bill pay or estate planning, um, or even like business management we've seen. Um, and then the inorganic part, which is really powerful, which I know you're a big fan of, is acquiring practices and recruiting advisors. The term I like to use is operating leverage. If you're an employee of a firm, your firm is keeping the operating leverage, meaning as you bring in a dollar of new client revenue, um, you're getting say 40% of that but the firm's keeping 60%. The, the numbers don't really expand beyond that. If you own your own practice, as you keep your fixed cost controlled, your, your rent, your salaries, your benefits, each dollar of revenue goes to the bottom line. And that's really how you get margin expansion and how you create real value. So advisors who are really bullish, not just on themselves, but also in building an enterprise and recruiting and acquiring can amass ridiculous fortunes because these mostly fee-based businesses uh, right now are selling for record multiples and can sell it for long-term cap gains, at least for now. We'll see if that changes, um, but at least for now, um, that's kind of the way I would talk to an advisor about the economics and growth of these different channels of the industry.
Yeah, extremely well said. And, you know, we're so aligned, interestingly. Um, I've got obviously a bias. I, I am an independent advisor, so I've got probably a bias towards independence. Two things I wanted to drill down on. One is, um, you know, you hear about wirehouse and regional deals, right? And, you know, sometimes they seem actually unbelievable, right? Like 250, 300% plus. So uh, without going into specific deals for firms or anything along those lines, I'll hit, with, I'll hit you with a cut and two-step question. So the first would be like, is that real? Is that really happening out there? Which I believe it is, but as someone who lives it every day, I'd love to hear it directly from you. And then two is, I know you do some work in the M&A space and it's a fast growing part of your business at Diamond. Um, maybe for the listener's perspective, you could talk a little bit about how, how you see valuations. You talked about them being at kind of real high levels right now, which I agree, but kind of where do you see, you know, independent financial services businesses, uh, you know, kind of monetizing? Absolutely. Yeah, so the numbers, the headline numbers you hear, um, and I think you were you were conservative in the 250%. Um, I mean, deals in the in the wirehouse or W2 world, they can get up to 350% of an advisor's trailing 12 months production or GDC or revenue, depending upon what channel of the industry they're coming from. What's misleading about that is it's not like you join day one and all of a sudden you're getting a check for three and a half times your your, um, your trailing 12. The way those deals are structured is, I would say about half of that, say one and a half to 1.75 um, times your T12 is paid up front. And it's less if you're a smaller practice. Um, it doesn't normally exceed that though. And then the rest is earned based upon portability of assets, usually within the first year. And then the firms look for some pretty significant growth to hit the full deal. So the typical deal will have an advisor um, earn really the, the, full, the full amount, normally within the first five years, but some of the deals require an advisor to grow by 150% by the fifth year. And if you take a transition and getting back to just where you were, plus the risk of the market, and just, I mean, practices get bigger, the law, law of large numbers kicks in, um, most advisors won't hit the full deal. They're still extremely lucrative and some advisors are just really good at growing and they like the motivation of it. And it's a, it's a life-changing money, um, but it's, it is kind of funny money. It's all ordinary income. Um, if you're terminated for whatever reason, you have to, you have to owe back that money and the deals are nine, 10, sometimes up to 13 years. So an advisor has to be really comfortable that they're signing on to the best possible firm, not just for now, but also if they have a crystal ball for the next 10 years plus. Um, so that's what I'll say on, on deals. It, it is real, but it's, but take it kind of as, at face value because it's not just a guarantee. I, on the M&A side, um, we've seen valuations, I mean, honestly, really soar the last year and a half or so as interest rates have hit rock bottom. And we've seen so much private equity money come into the industry and throw their weight behind some really impressive firms um, those firms are really bidding up the prices. So the multiples have gone up, um, but really I think what's, what's changed the most is the structure of deals. Um, it used to be even five years ago, if a buyer came with 30% of the purchase price um, at closing in cash, that was probably good enough. Now, if you can't come with 70, 75, 80% of cash at closing day one, don't even enter the conversation. So the deal structures have gotten significantly more favorable to the seller, which is kind of the opposite of what I was saying with like with the traditional wirehouse deals, where those are the risk is kind of shared between the two. And these M and A transactions, because of so much demand and so much capital in the space, not only have deals have valuations gone up, the structures are better. And I think just with the there's a there's a there's a finite supply of quality fee based. Um, businesses that can grow organically and those businesses get a premium. And we've seen an absolute rush for firms to sell at the end of last year. And I think this year too, with the fear of long-term cap gains rates going up for higher earners. And I think that'll be another catalyst on top of succession planning and firms being subscale in the industry. 
Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. You're amazing at remembering my two questions. I usually trick people up. You're good. <laughs> I didn't have to write it down and recite it and all that this time. Yeah, I know. Lewis is making our job even easier here, which is great. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I echo your thoughts there, Lewis. I think uh, you know, thanks for confirming uh, kind of that wirehouse regional deal uh, kind of thing. So I guess it is real, but maybe when you get under the hood. Um, maybe a smaller percentage than you think actually earn out the full bonus, still super lucrative. And like you said, it's ordinary income and, uh, you know, et cetera. And then I couldn't agree more. I mean, we're seeing it. I miss the days with a 30% down payment and a seller note. And yeah, I mean, with banks flooding into the market and PE money uh, and interest rates being uh, low and, you know, markets being high and tax rates likely changing in the future, or potentially changing it really has kind of created that perfect storm uh, for sure. So I completely uh, concur with everything that you're saying there. Um, you know, another thing you hit before, I wanna just, uh, I just wanna make the point. I don't know that I need more from you on it, but for the listeners, um, again, I'm slightly biased towards the independent world. I think if you listen closely to what Lewis said, um, it's really been my key to success, which is when you think about it, at an independent broker dealer or an RIA or kind of on the far right, let's say of, of Lucas's uh, you know, horizontal line before. Um, if you think about that, um, you know, when you compare that to a high, when you net it all out, 30% or 40% payout rate uh, in the wirehouse regional world, uh, net net, it's that differential, right? It's that 50 or 60% of extra margin that gives the advisor the control over how he or she makes intelligent investments in their business, whether it be to just draw more profit out, to invest more in marketing or technology or people. And I think that's really, you know, from where I sit, when advisors delve into um, where they have the most flexibility uh, and the most opportunity, if they bet on themselves to make intelligent investments and, 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 you know, and their own ability to grow and create scale, that's where you really get this kind of quantum growth. So Lewis, any thoughts there? I mean, is that how you see it as well? Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to look at it is instead of having your firm direct how they're going to allocate money for real estate and for staff costs and for your cookie cutter website, and also to make a nice profit margin themselves, um, you as the independent advisor, have the ability to direct the funds and direct how it is you want to live your business life. Um, the, the one comment I'll make though, in credit of, or in fairness to anyone who's sitting at a wirehouse is that there is still a lot of value that a wirehouse firm provides. And the value might be different depending upon the advisor's practice, the types of clients and how much they, they use the, the whole firm. But for many, the, the brand of a firm is, is beneficial. It helps them grow. They use things like the lending department and the planning experts and the trust company and the firm manage, the firm run um, investment solutions. So for, for many, the wirehouse world or W2 world still makes a lot of sense because even though they can stand to make more money as an independent, it's not the highest and best use of their time to be a business owner. And maybe for them, their growth rate would be lower as an independent because they actually use all of the resources. Um, the, I think the vast majority of advisors are, even if they're an employee, they look at themselves as business owners already, and they already are entrepreneurial. And I think most, if they if they had it, if you left it up to them, would rather direct money the way the way that that they wanted to. So either make more money, as you said, or allocate it toward areas that are going to help them grow. Yeah, no, well said. And I, and I think you're right. I think um, the data is the data, right? So the biggest businesses out there are still wirehouse advisors. So uh, there's something that those big firms are doing to make it easier, right? To kind of plug in, yep. uh, leverage a brand and, and grow bigger businesses. So completely uh, agree. I think that's where probably your kind of questionnaire to find out who that advisor really is and what he or she, um, you know, kind of how they're wired. Are they wired to to build or, or do on their own, uh, so to speak. So another thing I wanted to hit you with, Lewis, is um, I've read some, and I don't know if you have any uh, information on this, but 
you know, I've read probably over the last year or two that the bank world, bank financial advisors, wirehouse world, there seems to be a trend towards um, moving more towards salaried positions yep. um, than kind of payout rate uh, positions as that next gen advisor becomes the successor to some lifelong advisors who in the wirehouse world that are exiting. Um, I'm just curious about your opinion. Is that something that as you look at your crystal ball that you see in the future or, um, you know, just love to, to kind of get in your head on that a little bit. So that's the ultimate fear of any wirehouse or bank advisor is all of a sudden getting paid on a grid or keeping a percentage of revenue gets gets chopped and all of a sudden it's salary and bonus. Um, that's the biggest fear. Um, various compensation plan changes that get pushed through annually, they start to chip away at advisor compensation or prioritize certain agenda items for the bank. And that begins to look more and more like a salary and bonus arrangement, but we don't really think that all of a sudden they're all just gonna to go to salary and bonus. They, every single advisor would leave and they couldn't justify that. Um, so it is kind of moving that way. Advisors do say, we, we see the handwriting on the wall. And even though it's tolerable enough now, or I'm still making a lot of money, I don't wanna be the one to turn off the lights. And I'd rather get out and control my own destiny before the market's flooded with my peers or before it's too late because I'm locked up by whatever agreement or retention bonus or, um, or my firm point protocol. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. And you know what, if I was the, the CEO of a <coughs> wirehouse um, or a bank and we're looking at it, if I could you know, structure my business in such a way, I've got to assume advisor compensation, uh, at least on that side of the business has to be the number one expense to the business, right? And it's not just the expense, it's also with some firms, it's a mismatch between the culture and the compensation models of their private banks or their, their bank branches. So if you look at a, a Merrill Lynch or a Bank of America, um, they own US Trust, which is a salary and bonus private bank. They have the bank-based advisors. So those sitting in a, in a branch, those guys and gals are normally salary and bonus or they have a really low payout. And then you have the, the wild card, which are the Merrill Lynch financial advisors. So when Bank of America bought Merrill, they didn't really have this commission-based, eat-what-you-kill type segment. And now you kind of throw those folks into the mix and they're making, some some cases, three, four, five times the amount as other advisors. And so it's not just, it's an easy way to make more money for the firms. It's also a mismatch in cultures, which is one of the biggest reasons many advisors leave those types of firms is because the culture's changed and the heavy hand of the bank has really eroded the culture and what it means to be an advisor at those organizations. Nope, makes makes a ton of sense. Um, and I never really thought about it that way, but uh, that <laughs> that's super clear. You know, one or two th more things, you know, jumping in my, my brain here as they often do, um, is one, when you, when, when you think about engaging a firm like yours, right, as an advisor. So if I'm an advisor, it sounds like the process is, Lewis, um, I'd come, I'd engage with someone like yourself on your team or, you know, one of the other folks in roles like yours on, on your team. Um, we'd kind of go through this questionnaire. We'd understand where we're trying to go from a business perspective, what that advisor is looking to do so that he or she could just better understand, let's say, the marketplace, right? Um, <clears throat> once <clears throat> they understand that marketplace, they interview at a couple of firms, they find, excuse me, say one or two that they think could be a good fit. I think what you mentioned before is your role at that point is to kind of represent um, the advisor and help ensure that they negotiate the best, I'll call it deal um, for themselves. So, um, and, I, and I think advisors probably often don't think of that. I personally have never moved broker dealers, so I'm fairly inexperienced in it, but I've helped folks come to my firm and I know they rarely know the right questions to ask, right? As to kind of what the parameters are of how they can actually create the best economics or the shortest duration or 
um, you know, kind of just structure the best deal. Can you talk through that a little bit? Like what, what, what exactly would a firm like yours help that advisor with? Um, and what do you think some of those kind of levers are that you try to help pull a little bit with your knowledge and relationships? Sure. Yeah. So we're very good negotiators and that, but that's not the reason advisors should work with us. Um, truthfully, we're, we're not going to do so much better um, negotiating on behalf of an advisor than they would do on their own. Um, I, I think most of the time we could, but it's not going to be such a wide margin where you're foolish not to work with us. You work with us for the, the counsel, for the advice, um, for, the, for the objective perspective. Um, but the value we bring in helping advisors negotiate or talk through the economics of a deal is that we have a lot of experience working with really most firms in the industry. So we've seen what they've done for other clients with similar businesses. So we know what the guardrails are. We know what the, what the electrical third rail is that you shouldn't ask for and it's going to be a waste of your time and it's going to make you look bad in the eyes of the firm. But we also know what are the reasonable things that they might be able to expect. So even if we come to a similar spot on deal, what we have done is precluded advisors from completely either ruining a relationship with the hiring manager or a firm because they got too greedy um, or from feeling like they left chips on the table. Um, so I would say it really does depend upon what type of firm an advisor is going to because there's different levers to pull in a deal. If you look at a wirehouse deal, for example, the different aspects are the upfront bonus. You have the backend bonuses, kind of like the earnouts. You can talk about the length of the note, although that's one where we'd say, don't even bother because they don't move on it. Save your time. You might be able to negotiate for support staff compensation or travel and entertainment budget or a marketing budget. Um, or a Bloomberg station or what office you're going to have. There's a lot of a lot of fat in that deal. So there's more things to ask for and there's more to kind of keep in mind. But if you look at a deal with a independent firm where the packages are much less, there's still some room to run. Um, it does depend upon the size of your practice and how much the firm wants you to know how much leverage you have um, and how much profit there, there might be for a firm. But um, we can normally get more upfront for an advisor. Sometimes we can get the duration of a note shortened. Sometimes we can get backend hurdles added or increased. Um, and then occasionally too, things like ACAT budgets or technology fees or attending the national conference for a few years, sometimes payout, admin fee. Um, there's a lot of levers to pull, um, but it does depend upon the firm and also how attractive the advisor is to an organization. Yeah, no, well said. And I would say um, you, you rattled off a lot of really, really good kind of levers to pull there. And it seems to me like for an advisor thinking about making a change, you kind of look at it and you go, you know, hopefully you only make one change in your career, maybe two, right? Um, so to do it with some trusted guidance with experience seems to be super smart. Um, here's my last question as we're running out of time here a little bit. And I want to give you the chance also to uh, you know, kind of share anything that we might not have asked you about, Lewis, but what do you find? I mean, I think, you know, in, in being involved in, in helping recruit advisors for, you know, a fairly long time myself, um, you know, I, I always look at it and say, it's really, really hard for advisors to pull the trigger, right? Because it's way more comfortable to stay uh, and do what you're doing than to get super uncomfortable uh, and, you know, and take a, a fairly risk, a big risk, as you described it before. But when all the dust settles, I'm sure there's extremes, right? Advisors who move over 100% of their business, advisors who have a terrible transition uh, and move very little of their business. But what's sort of like that sweet spot, right? Where, where do you see most advisors when they do make a change, you know, a year later, 18 months later, maybe when everything's fully settled, um, is there an average that you've seen from the folks that you've been involved in helping make, uh, make these big moves? Yeah, so it, it, the answer does change a little bit if you're moving from a captive firm where you don't own your clients, where you've, you might own the relationship in your mind, but, but legally you don't own the clients. 
So when those advisors move, their accounts get redistributed to other folks in their office or in their complex, and the firm does everything they can to try to keep the clients. Um, you compare that to someone leaving an independent firm where they own the data, they own their book, they can give notice and kind of do it a little bit more leisurely. Those moves obviously have a little bit less unpredictability, but usually a well-run practice with someone who's been relatively thorough in their diligence, they're moving for the right reasons and they're going to a good firm, should expect between, I would say 85 and 95% of the assets or of the clients that they want to move. Plenty of advisors use the move to fire clients or to even leave behind portions of their business that don't serve them. So maybe it's a institutional part of the business or maybe it's trust business or it's alternative investments that can't move. Um, so I would say of the, of the portion of the book that's actually portable and that they want, 85 to 95% would be good. And you're right, there are extremes. We've had advisors go independent and be at 110 or 115% of assets without bringing in any new clients because now they can report on their clients 401k assets or their, they can bill and charge an advisory fee on someone's outside alternatives. Um, or manage their business funds. Um, so definitely extremes, but I think it's good, good to be conservative. Um, expect, expect a worse transition than you think is probably right, because then at least you can plan. Then you know how much cash flow you need. Um, you know if the move's going to make sense, because the last thing you want is to, is to throw gasoline on an already stressful situation and be worrying about mortgage payments and putting food on the table and making sure your assistant gets her salary. Um, so definitely be conservative and plan. And that's why upfront money is oftentimes a really important uh, factor in a move. Not because advisors are trying to get rich in the move, but because they want and need cash flow and they have down months of earning when they're making a move. Couldn't agree more. Very consistent that 85 to 95% number um, is pretty much what we've seen, uh, you know, in, in our experience as well. So, Lewis, you are awesome, my friend. And I thought uh, super productive conversation. And we really, really appreciate uh, all your knowledge, time, uh, and thoughtful answers uh, to some of the questions that I think would be on our uh, listeners' minds. Anything that we didn't hit with you that you might want to share um, with our audience? I don't really think so. I mean, maybe the only kind of parting word of advice would be, even if you're, you're pretty happy where you are, which is, which is many advisors, um, don't take what you have for granted. Um, we've seen advisors world just change on a dime because their firm was sold or God forbid they're terminated or they no longer can do a certain type of business, whether it's serving international clients or serving, um, serving um, nonprofit institutions, we've seen that before. So I think always, always be educated. Um, and whether that's having a conversation with someone like me, it's talking to friends in the industry, it's, it's reading about what's going on, um, always be prepared that way. Cause then you can jump to action quicker and in a more comfortable way. And it'll never hurt you to know what your peers or what your competitors are doing. Um, that would probably be the only kind of piece of parting advice. And the other thing I'll say, John, which is a, an endorsement of, uh, of you, um, when we did our podcast together in December and our series, Mindy Diamond on Independence, um, our discussion around the transition from being an advisor to being a CEO and taking off the uh, the advisor hat in your case and becoming a full-time executive, um, I think is one of our most helpful episodes um, for advisors who are kind of on the fence of whether they have what it takes to be to be independent. Um, so I, I love that episode. I, I send it around to folks all the time and I would encourage people to give it a download and give it a listen. On top of your, uh, your probably three hour episode with Michael Kitsis that, that just came out, um, I'm really excited to listen to that next time I have a long car drive. Oh, Louis, thanks for the kind words. Um, yeah, Michael only kept me for an hour and a half, so I, I felt uh, <laughs> I felt a little uh, uh, less than, so to speak, kidding, of course. But yeah, I had a lot of fun with, fun with Michael, uh, and thanks for the kind words. It was fun doing your podcast as well. Um, and I think your parting advice was was um, very prudent. Um, you know, I would sum it up in saying, have a plan B, right? Okay. Um, the old bumper sticker that says S H blank blank 
happens. Um, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. And being connected to some smart people like yourself, Lewis, in the industry that know the industry and have connectivity uh, that can make sure if and when you want or, you know, in some cases need to make a change uh, that you've got a plan B and you've done your due diligence, I think would be super prudent. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Shenandoah to kind of wrap us up and let everyone know where to find you uh, as well. And again, a sincere thanks, Lewis. You were awesome. Thanks again uh, for being on the podcast today. Hopefully we can have you back someday. Of course. Thanks so much, John. It was a blast. Yeah, absolutely. So much to think about. A lot of great information for our advisors. Definitely keep your opportunities um, open and look at what is available. The market's always changing. The industry is always changing. Um, and each of the platforms are changing. So staying informed, and that's what we're trying to do here. And I know that's a lot what you do on your podcast as well. Um, just helps you make sure you're doing the best for you, your firm, and your clients. So fantastic. If advisors are wanting to consider their options, have some questions, or looking um, to take this assessment that you have, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, so my, um, I would say our website is a wealth of information. It's where our full podcast series is. We write a weekly article that you can sign up for, same thing with the podcast. And we have a bunch of tools and resources, including a, um, a scaled down version of the assessment I mentioned. So that's a good place. Or feel free to reach out to me by email, ldiamond at diamond-consultants with an S.com. Again, ldiamond at diamond-consultants.com. And um, even if you're, uh, you're not looking to move or you're well covered in a transition, I'm always happy to have a confidential and completely free conversation. Excellent. Well, I will make sure to put those links in the show notes. So it'll be the link to diamond-consultants.com, the website, as well as your email address. So you can go and uh, subscribe to their podcast, sign up for those articles and take that free assessment as well as schedule a consultation. So lots of great resources available for you. Thank you once again, Lewis, for joining us. Definitely learned a lot, took a lot of notes. Uh, looking forward to having you on as a guest again in the future. Um, and to our listeners, if you have someone who you think would be a great guest, we are looking and booking out into the future. So feel free to submit someone you think it would be good, even if it is yourself. We're always looking to hear from financial advisors who have grown or solved problems and are willing to educate their fellow advisors and, and, and kind of give back to the industry by sharing that with us as well. So once again, you can, um, I'll put that link in the show notes as well for you to submit yourself as a guest or submit someone else. And then tune in next week as we bring on another great guest. Bye y'all. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.